1: Hi there, I'm Carla Appy, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thanks very much for joining us today. I recently spoke with Michael Hathaway about his great new book, Environmental Winds, Making the Global in Southwest China. This came out in 2013 with the University of California Press. This is a book that's worth reading. Hi, I'm Carla Appy, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thanks very much for joining us today. I recently spoke with Michael Hathaway about his great new book, Environmental Winds: Making the Global in Southwest China. This came out in 2013 with the University of California Press. This is a book that's worth reading and is really fascinating whether you come to it with a deep interest in East Asia and in China, or whether you're more broadly interested in the environment studies, ethnographies, and histories of not just um, the environment in different localities, but also of the very concept of environmentalism itself. Hathaway uses a case study Looking at 20th and 21st century Yunnan and the emergence of an entanglement of Yunnan with transnational environmentalism in that context, to do a sort of larger and broader kind of work that involves introducing a concept called environmental winds, with which... He proposes that we think about and can understand not just the case study he's talking about, and perhaps not just environmental history, but also transformations more broadly. And you'll hear him talk about that in a few moments. It takes not just a kind of traditional approach to looking at NGOs coming into um, different localities across the globe uh that treats this as a kind of, you know, the West comes into the East and transforms it. But he really takes very seriously, um, in a way that's really, really interesting and really, I think, fascinating, the transformative and the formative role of Chinese scientists, of local experts, and makes this into a story that's not just about um, the West coming into the rest. It's really about the co creation of transformations in peoples and environments that have really wide reverberations. And that co-creation doesn't just involve humans, it also involves animals, it involves elephants and other non-human agents. So it's a really interesting story. Again, it's interesting whether or not you come to it with any kind of prior knowledge um, of China and of Chinese history, but it also rewards those of us who do come in with some kind of um, background or expertise thereof. And it's just great fun to read as well. So it was great to talk with Michael about it. I hope you enjoy the interview and I hope you have a chance to go out and read the book. We're here today to talk with Michael Hathaway about his new book, Environmental Winds, Making the Global in Southwest China. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Michael, and thanks very much for coming all the way out to UBC today and making time to talk with me about a book I really enjoyed and I'm really delighted to talk with you about. So thank you and welcome.
0: Great. Thanks so much. It's great to be here and talking with you again.
1: So Michael, could you start us off as is traditional for mm-hmm. interviews on this channel by saying a little bit about yourself and specifically how did you come to work on the ethnography of China? And I know you talk a little bit about this in the beginning of the book, so it's actually kind of an interesting story, but why don't you tell us a little bit about it?
0: Sure. Um, well, for China in particular, there are a couple of dynamics, one of which I mention in the book, one of which I don't. Um, so one of the the times that I... Re- my curiosity about China was quite piqued Was when I was um, an undergraduate and going just kind of perusing the library, and I, I had um, I found this book. And it was written by the American Friends Service Committee, and I had grown up in a Quaker community, and so I was particularly you know interested in this book because it said ten uh, top myths about China. And it was basically designed as a kind of internationalist Quaker move to try to defuse some of the cold war ideas around china and it was designed for u.s policymakers so i read this right around you know a few years before i ended up going and i was really curious to think about what are the kind of public perceptions and how like what is this cold war legacy about and then really curious about what actually existing socialism might look like um, but as i say in the book we through a chance encounter in california I met someone who had just returned from southwest China who had spent um, a month of travels up high in the mountains between the border of Myanmar and Yunnan and also dipping in around Vietnam um, with some ethnobotanists to find, as as he called them, you know, kind of older medicine men uh, uh, out in the hills who were not Han Chinese, but different ethnic minority groups and trying to do a study of different endangered medicinal plants. And he put me in touch with uh, this amazing um, botanist who had all kinds of connections for us in, in China and welcomed us very much. Great.
1: Yeah. So the book itself explores what you call the changing environmental winds. And I'm making little scare quotes there <laughs> because it's a quote and it turns out to be a really important concept in the book. And so we'll get to that in a moment. Mm-hmm. But the book explores this these changing environmental winds in Yunnan, during the life of the WWF, the World Wildlife Federation Project, that you look at and focus on in the book and explore lots of things happening before that and after that. Okay, so we'll talk about all of these different Mm -hmm. elements of the story in a moment. But first, how did you come particularly to this topic? What brought you to working on this particular Mm -hmm. period and this particular set of issues within Yunnan?
0: Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting. I had a longstanding interest in... Um, indigenous issues that first really started with North America. Um, And then through a number of events, I ended up uh, doing a long-term research project looking at Brazil. And I was particularly curious about the relationships between indigenous groups there and then environmentalists. So that was the beginning of this kind of fear about the Amazon. And so I for some time studied these issues about how environmentalists both worked with and against different indigenous groups and how that that kind of tension resolved itself. So it was still very much on my mind when just a year later, I ended up in Southwest China. But I had no idea there that there were all these different groups that might be like indigenous people in China. I basically had very little background about China. I kind of saw them as all probably Han Chinese. And so I was fascinated to think through the Brazilian case in relationship um, to what might be happening there. It turned out that we ended up at a forestry university and a lot of our best friends were deeply involved with the World Wildlife Fund and all these other organizations that were mediating kind of European or North American environmentalism with, all these other um, rural groups, very many different languages and and other cultures.
1: So thank you also for reminding mm-hmm. me that it's World Wildlife Fund. Of course, mm-hmm. you you know ICWWF, I think World Wrestling Federation, <laughs> oh, and so it's right. a, think that would be a completely different book. <laughs> <Right>. So <laughs> World Wildlife Fund, and not the World Wrestling Federation. Right, right. But we'll talk. Maybe that's a second or third book. So okay. <laughs> at the time. Yeah. But <laughs> okay, well, thank you, Michael. So this actually started out as dissertation work, right? Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about that transition? Were there any, um, specifically, were there any major transformations in the project from its instantiation as a dissertation to the book that we have now? Were there any major mm-hmm. ways that the way you were thinking about what you were arguing changed or any kind of major transitions in that process oh, yeah. that you want to share? Oh, yeah,
0: that's a great question. Um, to I would say, if anybody would ever <laughs> look, you know, could looked at the dissertation to what they one thing that they would see is that the idea of winds is there but it's just barely there it was just something i kind of noted as an ethnographic uh dynamic that was going on it was just something that colleagues and other you know these especially these chinese urban based experts used to understand that world but i at that time, I had no real concept of it as a metaphor and as a as a larger theoretical concept. So really, it was um, years later in um, that there were a few different elements of it that, that kind of got me going for this. And one of these um, that I mentioned uh, briefly in the book was a discovery uh, of um, in the archives in Ann Arbor where I did my um, – PhD of um, so many references, both in terms of woodblock art and in text uh, to the 1960s kind of radical feminist movement and also the kind of Black Power movement and how much it deeply drew on the Cultural Revolution and Maoism and the little red book and and so that it always kind of piqued my interest I, after I finished the dissertation, I ended up uh, interviewing a few women who had been really kind of important in that movement and uh, just about – I was just curious about the feminine, the history of the feminist movement. And then China kept coming up and I had no idea and so I went to try to find what had been written about this and almost nothing had. And so it started me to, to think that actually this metaphor of winds might be more helpful to understand what was happening globally, what was changing – for different um, different topics, rather than it wasn't just about a way to think about environmentalism for these colleagues in China, but it might be have broader implications. That I was curious about, and that's what really helped me restructure the the book in a completely different way.
1: Right, that often yeah. happens, right, from that one <laughs> phase to the other, is that we sort of change what we imagine our argumentative contribution is going to be to the larger field that we're talking to that's sort of beyond the particular case study that we're mm-hmm. exploring. I think that happens to most of us probably in that transition.
0: Exactly, yeah. yeah.
1: So you already brought up, um, Mm -hmm. and and I brought up Mm -hmm. as well at the beginning, Mm -hmm. this concept of Mm winds. So let's actually, since we're on that topic, let's Mm -hmm. just go right there. Mm -hmm. The concept of environmental winds is really one of the foundational concepts that threads through all of the chapters of the book and is one of the most... Um, upfront and really significant theoretical contributions that the book is making and trying to make from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. So why don't we talk a little bit about that? Can you explain mm-hmm. um, why and what do you mean by winds and mm-hmm. environmental winds in particular? Okay,
0: great. Yeah. So winds um, in China are a very common reference. And, you know, as you well known as a you know, historian of China, they go back really, far, and they're really wide, and they appear in medicine and so many fields, mm-hmm. so that the concept of winds has this broad social use, but um, what I kept hearing about uh, in terms of people understanding their themselves as historical beings or narrating the past was that life uh, changes through these winds, and one of the interesting things about it was that I first I understood winds as this natural concept that is unrelated to sociality. So it's just something that happens to people and that people deal with it. So they would often talk about massive political upheaval as a series of winds, or the the Cultural Revolution, or the Great Leap Forward as a powerful wind that swept through. And I then more thought of than people are just subject to winds, but the way they talked about winds was that especially people that are more, you know, powerful than they, but also as well themselves in this larger sense of uh, the masses or the people that they themselves had a role in shaping how the winds transformed. Did they pick up into this great fury and power that, that utterly changed their lives or did they die out? How did they transform? And so... I was really intrigued by this idea that um, whereas we tend to think of larger social forces as something that happens from above just to us, this other more um, iterative, reiterative kind of idea, uh, reciprocal idea that involves the social in the very production of these forces that especially things that we imagine as global and really kind of separate from us. So that was one idea. It's it's interesting because very few of my um, colleagues and friends there actually use the term win to, th- to talk about tra- things transnational. So it's a much, uh, much more of a kind of locally or nationally based concept in their own idiomatic use. Mm-hmm. But I think they would be quite friendly to the idea of uh, expanding it more broadly and then in terms of environmental winds, I mean, they refer, referred to a whole number of different winds in their lives, but they said, wow, in the you know 1990s, that's when you just had um, so many people, both internationally and nationally, talking about the environment, and it was a new term for them mm-hmm. in, a, in a lot of ways. I mean, there were pre-existing concerns about flooding or soil erosion or all these things, but to talk about huanching, talk about the environment as uh, a, uh, an umbrella term for a whole number of concerns. It never really happened, and there were so many new environmental laws that came out and that really changed things quite a lot for both the urbanites but especially the people who lived in the countryside because for a lot of people, this part of China in the southwest with borders, you know, Tibetan Plateau and Yunnan, it goes down to the tropical rainforest. This was the key center of kind of wild China. Um, so both Beijing and as well as a number of other international groups really saw Yunnan as the place to kind of save Chinese nature, um, as well as a number of Chinese themselves were really wrapped up in uh, wildlife conservation.
1: Great. So So when you say um, this is actually a great place from which to continue, because Mm -hmm. when you say they were thinking about winds and they Mm -hmm. were thinking Mm -hmm. about the notion of environment, Mm -hmm. the they that we mean includes, I'm I'm guessing, Mm -hmm. Um, many of the people who you were talking to and interviewing during Mm -hmm. the, I think, six trips lasting a total of more than three years that you Mm -hmm. mentioned that you did um, ethnographic work in Yunnan. This also um, may include people that you um, read about in your archival studies, right? Mm -hmm. And so you were you base the study on interviews, archival studies, workshops, living in rural villages that were part of international conservation projects, as you mm-hmm. put it in the book, and all kinds of other sorts of research that went into this really, really interesting story. So when we say, when you say mm-hmm. they, um, who, are, who, who were some of the people who you actually interacted with in this mm-hmm. um, in the course of this ethnography that really stand out to you as representative of the major categories of people? Mm-hmm. Who mm-hmm. come into this story under this umbrella? They and mm-hmm. then we can sort of get into the mm-hmm. chapters. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's great, and and that's also another interesting thing in terms of transformation. From the the dissertation was originally much more a more traditional um, kind of rural based ethnography. You know, living in the village and the and the rural mm-hmm. scene, and these urban connections were somewhat peripheral. But in in rethinking it into the book, I realized that these these urban folks played a far more um, substantial role in these dynamics so when I say they I'm especially thinking about um, um, this group of people often in terms of generational um, ways so that the kinds of two, that's the way that they understand themselves and the kinds of wins that they were subject to so our first series of contexts. so when we first went there in 1995 and spent a year there Um, were um, often a series of people who were almost near retirement, who had been kind of China's earliest conservationists, who were um, scientists that were teaching in the the 40s. Um, And then, um, as you and probably many people know, know, during the 50s and 60s, they were often struggled against um, as intellectuals or people connected to the uh, bourgeois West, Etc. But they were just now like coming back into a kind of second, um, you know, spring, as they would say it, um, in their lives, and were being tapped to um, helped to um, moderate all this great international interest in Yunnan. Um, so they were uh, this uh, this group that. Um, it actually was just now regaining all these kinds of connections that they, that they used to have in the 30s and 40s and hadn't for quite mm-hmm. some time. Um, so a lot of them were ardent uh, conservationists um, and interested in saving primates or black uh, blackneck cranes, all these species. Mm-hmm. Then it the, turns out their children were often in a very difficult space. Um, the children had been uh, – the, so they're the, if we say they're the older generation than the middle generation – they were often um, denied a lot of uh, privileges because they were tainted as kind of, um, you know, by association with their parents. were often moving into science but were often denied access to many um, uh, aspects of education or position. Um, and then it turned out their uh, grandchildren, people of the youngest generation, were now just moving up, had been educated um, in English from the get-go, Um, So you had these three generations with very different sensibilities um, that had been uh, much more internationalist, that much more kind of domestically arranged, and then a kind of new internationalism. So I really um, spent a lot of time with these kind of three generations of of Chinese scientists, and some of whom became actually very uh, influential activists. Um, Mm -hmm. So there was one individual in particular that I talk about a bit in the book, um, named um, Yu Xiaogong, who was um, someone who was very interested in the potentials of um, expanding social justice, but connecting it through environmentalism. And he, for one, was one of the key people that was interested in this idea of indigenous rights and bringing it to China in a place that was quite antagonistic to that idea officially. Um, so I became um, uh, in touch with him uh, from, uh, I guess, the year 2000 and kind of followed his, his career. And I uh, describe him and a few other uh, – these other uh, major kind of cultural brokers that helped – that really helped make China and Yunnan become part of this, this kind of global uh, international or, or internationalized environmentalism.
1: Great. And that's great. And one of the chapters in particular, and we'll get to this um, in a little bit, actually takes us through examples of these three generations in a really Mm -hmm. fascinating way, including the individual that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. So to get there, um, these very interesting, very focused case studies are contextualized within a larger framework and a larger history that takes many of these terms that you just used in your description, Mm -hmm. environmentalism, indigenous, Mm -hmm. um, global, transnational, and shows readers the ways in which these terms and these contexts don't just come fully formed Mm -hmm. into the context of the emergence of a kind of um, globalism and environmentalism in Yunnan, but rather are produced um, Mm -hmm. by not just uh, World Wildlife Fund, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, officers who are on the ground but very much by Chinese experts at very different levels at all levels and local peoples who are working at very different kinds of careers and jobs who are helping produce what seem like they might otherwise be Mm -hmm. these very sort of high level historiographical concepts that would descend upon a space rather than emerging from it so this is Mm -hmm. about the sort of local production of the transnational and the global and the environmental um, in a really fascinating way. So let's get there. Okay, so I'll just kind of contextualize mm-hmm. a little bit before I start asking you <laughs> some questions. So the book pays, as I mentioned, um, particular attention to the importance of these Chinese experts and at various levels. And it does this to open up two sort of major questions that you start out with at the very beginning of the book. How are global connections made? And why do they happen so differently in different places? And so this is a book that, among many other kinds of work it's doing, is really taking apart this idea that there is a globalization that happens everywhere Mm and all, you know, in all places in the same kind of a way. And that's this kind of overarching similarity that gets plopped down upon the various places um, that we locate it. And the book is is taking that apart in, in a really interesting way. Okay, so we've already talked about the ways that environmental winds structure this narrative, and you've also talked a little bit about um, the kind of contextualization, what happened, what's happening pre World Wildlife Fund, um, from the 1950s to the 1980s, um, in Yunnan and in China. That leads us into the story. So if you talked a little bit about that, and we can maybe talk a little bit about that more mm-hmm. as we get to the different individuals over the course of the story. But let's get right to chapter two. Mm-hmm. Okay, chapter two looks at the establishment of the first transnational conservation efforts in Yunnan in the nineteen eighties. Okay, so this is a context in which, as you're um, showing in the book, and I'm just sort of mm-hmm. reiterating um, just to kind of contextualize this chapter. So, transnational connections and the incorporation of Yunnan into these connections and into the global conservation circuit was accomplished, or both of these things were accomplished, via the labor, mm-hmm. okay, the labor being a really key here, of a small, dedicated group of Chinese intellectuals and in country staff from the World Wildlife Fund. Okay, mm-hmm. so let's get into this. Mm-hmm. Chapter two, um, starting from chapter two on, each chapter not only presents a kind of context, as I've just briefly sketched, mm-hmm. but also a major concept that you ask us to think about in terms of this context and think about this context as reflecting. The major concept that comes up in this chapter is that of transnational work. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about this? What What is transnational work and what important work is this concept doing in terms of what you're arguing here in the chapter?
0: Mm-hmm. Great, thanks. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I have been trying to think through transnationalism for, for a long time and one of the elements in terms of um, kind of the, the breadth of theorizing around how transnationalism happens seems that it almost becomes this separate force that's separated from humans, from sociality, that just kind of moves on its own and largely seems just successful, that it just kind of happens, and one of the elements um, that I saw in, in you know, living in this place in Yunnan was, and working alongside a, a number of our colleagues was uh, the kinds of daily labor that it takes to make these connections in the first place. That they're never just easily done, but that they're, and I get to see how tentative they were. So, for example, um, the, a, a major Dutch organization had an environmental uh, project that they wanted to do. And there were a number of universities that were then competing um, to host this Dutch group and their environmental work. And so I was quickly roped in with my university in China and there were four others. And we just we spent months and reworking um, these uh, grant applications over and over and just got to see just how... Incredibly challenging it was to just kind of anticipate, um, you know, the Dutch interest and desire, and for them to coordinate uh, vis-à-vis these others. That that my uh, colleagues there just really felt that to to make these to build these kinds of connections was an incredibly labor-intensive and kind of continual process. And something that could be disrupted at any time, that's, I guess, too, maybe part of their idea of um, the way that history happens through the winds is that it's a very contingent um, process, but one that requires lots and lots of kind of thinking ahead and kind of building up, trying to forge connections. And then when they break or change, trying to constantly Adapt to them. Um, so this is a way of thinking about how uh, transnational, uh, rather than transnational forces, just occur. Of how at at any at any example of transnational connections, that there, it always is undergirded by a wide variety—not just people in the capital city, but a wide variety of actors that are doing their role, not necessarily. Even understanding the larger picture, but through their daily action, working towards something uh, that may or may not be contributing to making that link happen, at least temporarily.
1: And those yeah. actors in this mm-hmm. chapter include everyone from Prince Philip, <laughs> right, who is a fascinating part of the story. I have no idea. Um, There's a Prince Philip who actually toured Yunnan as the World Wildlife Fund's uh, president at one point and sort of initiated mm-hmm. some of these links that you mentioned to people who are exploring the mountain and forest regions, people who are responsible for IDing plant and animal species, then for correlating those IDs with, Sort of global um, mm-hmm. concepts of endangered species, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. People who are publishing, people who are holding conferences, people who are farming. So all of mm-hmm. these different sorts of actors are all engaged in this process of transnational work. And in, including younger generations of scientists and Prince Philip. I just love <laughs> that. <laughs> now one of the things that you mentioned in this con- in this chapter um, is something that recurs throughout many of the chapters, and you mentioned this already briefly, which is the importance of a Cold War context or an mm-hmm. awareness of a Cold War context, so what's happening here. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because that's mm-hmm. something that, again, we see in Chapter 2, but we see that coming up as an issue mm-hmm. um, in bits and pieces throughout the chapters mm-hmm. as well. And I wonder if you could speak sure. to that a little
0: bit. Yeah. I mean, one thing, too, that I would say in terms of writing this book, I really try to create an, a very inclusive audience. I try to, unlike many of the, the books written within China studies, that assumes a kind of expert knowledge, I, mm-hmm. I try to <laughs> just imagine a readership without any necessary any background at all in Chinese history or even contemporary China. So in terms of the Cold War, it's, it's interesting because my students now don't really often know about it, um, but it's something very much like in people of our own generation, it was very much present um, earlier on. So with the Cold War, I would just say um, briefly that... Um, Whereas the Cold War is often thought of as this antagonism between the United States and the Soviet Union. It turns out that in many ways, China was the key third player. Um, So throughout, for example, throughout Africa, um, it was really um, for different emerging uh, countries that were just uh, coming out of colonialism you had the Americans there, the Soviets and the Chinese. Um, And it's interesting because even my, a lot of my peers who know about the cold war don't actually think of China necessarily uh, so much or so prominently, but the cold war in China was hugely influential as, as you know, and um, was something that uh, in this three-way position between China, the Soviet Union and the United States that, uh, uh, political leaders were very much uh, jostling um, these uh, negotiations. And so in, in China, as I mentioned um, briefly, with the, the older generation of people that were born in the early 1900s, they um, during the Cold War era, so when, after Mao came into power in 1949 and especially the 1950s, there was a deep kind of fear and antagonism with... Um, you know the West and the U.S. in particular. Um, and so any kinds of associations with that were deeply compromised and antagonized. And during uh, later movements, anybody caught with those kind of books, those books would be burned, um, destroyed, that the people that had them could be punished. And so a number of my colleagues there had gone through that or had hidden these amazing um, books, sometimes even from the 1800s, of uh, bi- biological books under boards um, at great risk in their own home um, due to their incredible love of biology and these species. Um, but that the, the Cold War really kind of pushed broadly across this area and into the, you know, still into the 1980s. And beyond. So even when we arrived in 1995, there were huge areas of Yunnan um, in which um, foreigners were not allowed to go. Um, when I first went down to uh, Shishuan Bana, there were still um, signs up at all the bridges saying you're not allowed to take photographs, worried that it could be military secrets. There was a when I go to some rural villages, um, some people were asking what was. Uh, Basically, was the Cold War still on? Was uh, the U.S. and China in a kind of state of mutual antagonism or had that kind of, in, in their parlance, had that thawed, had that kind of the, the spring wind come of, of resolution? So whereas it was really deeply experienced, and felt, in the older and middle generation, even, you know, other people, you still, you still very much felt the kind of history of the present Um, There, as much as things had uh, changed, um, that was still something um, kind of deeply felt. And even in terms of the landscape itself, um, there were a number of, for example, uh, cities that were built that were designed to um, uh, escape uh, possible nuclear attacks from the Soviet Union or the U.S. It was just kind of hard to know who might um, be the enemy. So it was just there at this time of real... Um, opening up in, in a number of ways, but the Cold War was oh so <laughs> is there yeah.
1: And actually, yeah. that yeah. Um, as we move into the next chapter, mm. which um, looks at Xi Bana and also mm. looks at um, the context after we see in the previous chapter, the WWF has established mm-hmm. um, or has sort of set up early links with Yunnan and, and sort of a broader, what we might call a global discourse of environmentalism. Now um, we move in Chapter 3 to look from this sort of larger context of the village itself and look at, okay, what um, practically on the ground is happening as um, people working for and with the WWF are actually starting to work in and with Yunnan and, and what are the phenomena there. One of the figures that you focus on in here, um, Jack Bentley, mm-hmm. one of the things you mentioned here mm-hmm. is that he his identity in terms of the Cold War is becomes an issue because he was a Korean War vet, and this mm-hmm. is something that actually starts being relevant when people are interacting with him. But we'll get to him. Okay, mm-hmm. so Chapter 3. Mm-hmm. Um, chapter 3 looks at the ways that a lot of the kinds of actors who are involved in the transnational work that we looked at in the previous chapter, including NGOs, government ministries, Chinese scientists, and local vi- vi- uh, villagers... Engaged with what you put as the opportunities and the difficulties posed by environmental projects. And you focus in on, um, at the beginning of this chapter, Xiaolong Village Mm
0: -hmm.
1: as one of the WWF's model villages. So you use this case study to open up um, one of the additional major concepts that um, these chapters introduce. And here that is the art of engagement. Mm -hmm. Okay. So can you talk a little bit about this model village? So what Mm -hmm. is a model village? Mm -hmm. How does (laughs) Xiaolong function in that way? Mm -hmm. And how does this case study help us understand the concept of the art of engagement as you're presenting it in this chapter? Great.
0: Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, I um, came to Xiaolong as one of the kind of Key places through which my original project was oriented, which was to kind of study the effects of, of World Wildlife Fund. And I, um, you know, done a lot of reading in the social sciences to prepare myself um, for this time in this village. And I um, expected that people in this village are about 40 families. This is in the tropical uh, rainforest down near the Mekong River. Um, people have just kind of converted from um, homes made of split bamboo walls and thresh grass uh, uh, roofs to making uh, their homes out of carved wood beams and sometimes tile tile roofs. That mm-hmm. um, I had imagined that their major life orientation was that of, of resistance to state intrusion, was uh, that the state basically... Functions as an antagonist, a form of antagonism, really, and certainly to the perceptions of China and the Chinese state. Even just talking to somebody today about this, and Mm -hmm. they, you know, the typical Western idea is this, uh, yeah, this power, all-powerful, all-knowing Chinese state, and that if anything, you know, rural villagers are trying to get as much distance as they can, but it's basically (laughs) impossible, as the typical. Expectation. The um,
1: art of resistance, James C. Scott. Very right? much so.
0: like that's Yeah, the, the resistance thing is is so key. And I even I thought the best anthropologists, they try to document the most resistance the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the various forms or things that maybe even seem like acquiescence are actually forms of resistance. If you really know, you know, who, who these people are and get um, close to them. But I was so quickly disabused of this concept there. Um, um. very early on, although it took me a while to kind of realize this. I mean, there were several dynamics. I mean, one um, in terms of I had to meet with all these local officials to get some form of um, clearance to be there. Uh, I needed to get permissions from different police and political leaders as a foreigner to... Um, to live there. And I was very nervous about having any forms of association, thinking that I would somehow contaminate me as a, as somehow colluded with, with state power. But um, as the people that I live with in their house quickly told me that the only way that they would at all feel comfortable with me being there is that uh, I had to have connection state power as well as uh, state power zoned, you know, approval and support of me and as well, you know, a number of them were also unpaid, but also members of the Communist Party themselves, some of our best friends there, which didn't necessarily mean any particular orientation um, towards life, but they were m- much more worried about being kind of forgotten as a group of people and, uh, you know, down a dirt, muddy dirt road over some hills um, then they were worried about some idea of intrusion. I mean there were so many interesting, difficult things that happened to them, so they were always kind of thinking about what will happen next, and major um, political changes had um, you know swept through that area, of course, but they were working so hard to get connections to new people to like bo- uh, they, as they would call them bosses to buy their tea or connections within the police department so that when their uh, cousin was caught doing something, they might not get as high uh, a sentence or uh, they had uh, connections to like almost, um, you know, provincial level police or other forms. And and people were working really hard to, to forge those connections and then saw myself too as someone who might Uh, give them access to that. Unfortunately, it wasn't that (laughs) helpful in too many ways um, in terms of those larger connections, although I'm sure that my presence has been used in ways (laughs) that I have no idea. But but I ended up then kind of rethinking this idea of resistance um, uh, to what I end up calling the art of, of, of engagement about how that resistance is still, I think, very much part part of it. It's not that that Mm -hmm. these people here are not resisting at all, but it's often assumed by a number of, of, um, especially anthropologists, that that is this kind of um, almost uh, instinctual reaction to um, forms of power. And then it's that uh, especially rural people crave some form of autonomy and separation Mm -hmm. from the state. And I've learned a lot from um, James Scott's work, but I think that um, what I found there, and what I think is actually quite common in many places, is that there are very, very culturally and historically situated um, forms of kinds of selective engagement that people are doing. Um, and that gave me a different way to then understand what their varied life projects were about. Um, but it ended up being quite different than, than what I presumed.
1: Yeah. And this is actually a, another great ex- um, example of. The ways that the book is really working against an assumption that the kinds of encounter we see in the history of global environmentalism in particular places is one of action-reaction, mm-hmm. right? It's, mm-hmm. it's another example of you're showing us the ways that um, sort of co-production and of these concepts and modes of being really emerges out of a context that involves lots of different kinds of actors. And as we um, will get to before the end of our conversation, not all human actors, Mm -hmm. right? Right, And so we've been talking about human beings, but even the non-human actors come into this story once we get to the fifth chapter mm-hmm. it's great mm-hmm. so this um, this chapter we'll, we'll move on just for um, just so that I don't keep you for mm-hmm. like three hours talking about this before we even get to the elephants um, but an- another couple of things that this chapter does and I'll just mention for listeners mm-hmm. who are interested mm-hmm. in this there's you're offering like a really really interesting picture here of different ways that the villagers are, are engaging, so um, attitudes toward wild animals Mm -hmm. in various um, ways in terms of the local economy, roasting birds and eating bamboo rats and all that kind of <laughs> yummy stuff. Um, there's also a really interesting set piece that looks at this um, this figure, Jack Bentley, that mm-hmm. I mentioned, who was um, on the WWF's Bana team early mm-hmm. on. And you look at him and his Chinese assistant and the various successes and not that they had in terms of um Uh, promoting certain kinds of agroforestry and other kinds of projects in this area. And you look at some other projects that may have been perhaps more successful and talk about the reasons why. And so there's a lot going on here um, Mm -hmm. as part of the story that we're going to kind of slide past (laughs) and blow past to get to the next chapter on making an indigenous space. Mm -hmm. So this is also really fascinating. So I'll set the stage Mm -hmm. for listeners. So this chapter, chapter four, looks at what you call one of the unintended consequences of transnational environmentalism in China, and that is the emergence of new ways of thinking about and understanding indigeneity. Mm -hmm. So often, and this is also really instructive because um, for many reasons, but one of them is often um, we come to historical contexts like this with concepts of the indigenous already Mm -hmm. formed in our heads, right? And you're sort of showing the production of that concept here in in a, a way that's really interesting. So the context here, by the 1990s, global environmental efforts, as you show, were shaped by the indigenous rights movement. Chinese public intellectuals are reworking these concepts of indigeneity and helping form new concepts of indigeneity to make it, as you show here, a force for social critique and for social transformation. And you look specifically at three um, Chinese experts, three Yunnanese um, scientists in particular who are motive forces in this um, history of production. Okay. So, one of the things that comes up here in this context. Mm. Okay, we've talked a little bit about the fact that indigeneity is, is being produced, but you embed that within a larger concept here that you are asking us to think about, which mm. is perhaps with the big concept <laughs> of this chapter, uh-huh. and that is the concept of the making of an indigenous space. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about what that means for you in the context of this chapter? Mm-hmm. And um, if you want, you can bring in any of the the, ex, the three experts, okay. um, Pei Shangji, Xu Jianchu, or Yu Xiaogang, um, mm-hmm. that you introduced mm-hmm. so usefully for us here.
0: Okay, thanks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, it's, it was really interesting, too, as I mentioned earlier about how I was very much involved. I interested in the indigenous movement throughout the Americas, so North and South America, and then quickly realized when taking that into a Chinese context that, that had you know, very little shared history, very little sets of assumptions or even uh, treaty rights or other kinds of legal political dynamics. And so I was very intrigued when I first got there in the mid-90s, will the idea will the idea of indigenous people ever gain any traction? And so when I talked to various colleagues, they either said, look, Michael, it's either there are indigenous people or there aren't. And I played with that for a while, but then I got to thinking and kind of using to drawing on these other concepts of what are the forms of work that that are required to make a concept have a kind of, Um, make it inhabitable and make it into a social force with effects in the world. Mm -hmm. So that was part of my fascination that there actually were these, this group of people who was trying to make the argument in China that there were indigenous people and they were making that against the claims of the central government who basically said that, look, we are strongly supportive of indigenous rights, but, Indigenous people is a function of saltwater colonialism. So it's a function of when Europeans go to North America, South America, Australia, those kind of places. Those are questions of indigenous rights, and China is a strong supporter of that. And what they said, and they said this in the 80s and 90s in conjunction with uh, other major players in the region like India and Japan, and they all basically said – the question of indigenous rights has nothing to do with our countries. Our countries are totally different. It has no play. Mm -hmm. Um, And I studied in a way how, um, uh, uh, how Japan and India have each kind of negotiated that. But in China, it's still been a very central um, kind of position of the state that the question of indigenous people and indigenous rights has no um, basis in China, that everyone is equally indigenous and, And yet, I mean, as you mentioned, there was this connection with environmentalism and indigenous people. And there was this fear that the creating of these huge national parks, which led to all these uh, evictions of indigenous people in other countries, was going to actually happen in China as well. And so environmentalism was actually a particular threat to indigenous groups who ironically had lived perhaps sustainably or with enriching forms of biological diversity um, so one of these um, these kind of scholar activists um, was uh, Yu Xiaogong, who uh, was really intrigued with this. He um, especially worked on issues around the building of these huge hydro hydroelectric dams, which was really starting to take place quite strongly and expand in um, Yunnan um, in the 1990s. And he um, himself carried out some of the first social investigations of some of these dams and what happened to people afterwards. And I remember being um, in a a room with him and he just came back and he had gotten some funding to go and and study this one group. And he was just saying, Oh my gosh, these people, you know, basically these are for, these are indigenous people. They were now reduced to picking trash in landfills. And this is horrible. And his colleague, there at the Academy of Social Science said, oh, that's amazing, but you can't tell anyone about this, finding it's way too political. And Yu Gong said, well, of course, I've, I've called up all the major reporters in Beijing and they're making an article about this and we're really getting this out there. And he, um, we had a number of conversations and he was really interested in the idea that if certain groups of people could get indigenous rights, the discourse around indigenous rights would really position rural peoples quite differently than anything that had ever gone on before. So in both, I mean, in an interesting parallel between the way the Chinese st- state has typically created these big projects where they just, you know, people are moved willy nilly from one place to another or these quick, you know, bans against logging or, or uh, farming or uh, pastoralism that, um, that there is actually a kind of parallel form of uh, often kind of harsh uh, laws and radical changes that were being promulgated by environmental organizations who were doing these same kinds of things. So there was a kind of in, like a kind of unlikely uh, alliance or similarity of both modality and uh, practice. And he was quite intrigued by the invi- the the growing as and he used the term too environmental winds in Yunnan, but quite worried that this is going to have disastrous consequences for rural people. And so he thought that if there might be some way of using the concept of indigenous rights and then actually saying that these people actually have some kind of rights to this land and these rights should not be reduced but expanded, then this could be of great um, political use in in changing rural China. And he, he, he worked on this for a number of years and he translated a number of articles um, from, you know, English and uh, into Chinese and also, you know, was publishing in Chinese. And he and, and there are a number of other uh, individuals um, that were um, part of this, but all working with different angles with different visions. Um, he ended up feeling that there were actually very few groups that could easily in China, rural China, that could easily get put Into what some people call the savage slot or like the indigenous um, slot. Okay, and so that he felt that actually it was far too narrow of a term for doing this broader social justice that he wanted. And so, a number of people, uh, Tanya Lee and others, have talked about um, the problems of the global indigenous category um, in these terms, in terms of fitting into this savage slot, this pre existing slot. But I use the term indigenous space in this chapter, because I realized that it wasn't just a pre-existing notion that people can either be slotted into or not, but it also uh, takes all all these forms of work by so many different people to try to create the potentiality of indigenousness to exist in China as a real social force. So Yu Gong was one of these people who just really took it up for years and then has basically gone by from that he's he's end up saying no it's actually too narrow, there are a number of other people who have taken that up and tried to um, basically change this idea that's very common in China that rural people um, are ignorant, that they are damaging of the environment that they need to be trained in modern methods and hygienic methods and uh, you know so forth and um, tried to change that kind of modality to this new idea that they could actually, rural people who may, you know, often have never gone to high school, for example, have actually a rich set of knowledge, have actually been part of, in a way, co-producing the very landscapes that are so treasured by people rather than just being a threat to them. So it it has, uh, that's been part of the effect, I think, of the indigenous movement in environmentalism has been a, a transformation of some of the very assumptions about the relationships between humans and the environment that were often assumed to be intrinsically antagonistic to opening up different ways of understanding that. So whereas Yu Xiaogong has basically left that behind, there are a number of others who are still trying to work this category. And one of the funny things that actually happened or after the book was finished is that I found that too? Rather than there just being a Chinese state that is against this category, that there are a number of organiza- Chinese governmental organizations that are actually taking it up. So there are departments of health that are working with UN and other groups on indigenous health. That so there are groups in the Ministry of Forestry that are working on indigenous knowledge production. That there's there's actually a whole number of groups within the Chinese government that are themselves kind of fostering this um, indigenous space. And what you find particularly ironic, too, in rural China is that the category hasn't really circulated, so people, it's very rare that anyone living in the countryside would imagine themselves as indigenous, and all of the basic terms that China has to describe someone who is potentially indigenous are almost always hugely derogatory, and would be never the kind of terms of of appellation that they would use themselves. So I'm I've been actually kind of thinking through this question of how does, how can um, the Chinese terms or the concepts be queered in the way that like the kind of queer movement has, you know, transformed these terms of stigma into a term of self-designation and a form of kind of political awareness, identity, activism. Um, So it's an ongoing um, thing that I try to keep up on um, in China. And I know that actually at a, um, a uh, an article that I wrote around indigeneity. has just been translated in Chinese. So I'll be oh. interested to see when I go back yeah. pretty soon, like how people are reacting to it and thinking through um, this. And I'm trying to also think of China as a player. So again, not just like, as you mentioned, not just receiving these ideas, but how um, these questions in China may, in fact, I'm very curious and open to the idea that they may in fact have kind of reverberating effects that may, in fact, you know, change in, uh, currently or in, in the future, the dynamics of indigenous politics here. And I know, in fact, Asia has already done this mm-hmm. um, and African um, groups. Um, or it's already happened, but I'm curious to understand those connections.
1: Great, thank you. Yeah, yeah that's fascinating stuff. And I'll I'll mention to um, especially for listeners who haven't had a chance yet to read the book, and I hope mm-hmm. they I hope you all do, listeners <laughs> out there, um, because it's great, great stuff. But um just to mention the chapter that we're talking about also contextualizes you within a larger history, that, the the mm-hmm. sort of generational history mm-hmm. that he is that he emerges from in much the same way that you were describing at the very beginning of our conversation, right? I mean, this sort of, Mm -hmm. he, he being able to do the work that he's doing Mm -hmm. relies on the labor Mm -hmm. of the generations who have come before him, who are as you, um, and you give us a couple of examples here. We're really, um, rethinking some of these concepts that he's then, you know, sort of emerging from in really interesting mm-hmm. ways. so mm-hmm. slash and burn uh, the concept mm-hmm. of sacred land. and mm-hmm. all this is part of this larger history, um, and it's really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to mention that <laughs> for our listeners. Um, but the elephants. Uh-huh. We have to get to the end. We are finally at the elephants. Yeah. So we've been talking about human beings. We've been uh-huh. mostly talking about human actors and the kind of labor and agency um, that humans engage in and produce. Chapter 5 asks the question, what role do animals, wild animals in particular, and uh-huh. elephants uh-huh. Um, specifically? And I, as a sort of oral footnote, uh-huh. um, I say wild animals, but you do actually problematize in the uh-huh. chapter even that notion of a wild animal versus a domesticated uh-huh. and elephants here kind of occupy a liminal space between those. Yeah. But what role do elephants, let's say, play uh-huh. in global environmental efforts? So this chapter is going to show how different kinds of people actually enlist the support of animals, of elephants in particular, to build networks and to connect China with global conservation organizations, Okay. So, elephants. So let's let's get to the big question here that you even begin the chapter with. (laughs) Elephant agency. Mm -hmm. So in what way in this chapter um, are elephants agents for you? How are you using that concept? And how does that um, understanding of the agency of the elephants relate to the larger Mm -hmm. argument that you're Mm -hmm. making in this part of the book, in this chapter? Great.
0: Thanks. Yeah, and I, I mean, one thing I might say, too, is that this kind of really involved thinking through the elephants is a pretty recent um um issue for me one that i'm very you know actively and very you know excitedly um engaging in but i think actually very little of the elephant stories were um, present in earlier iterations of of the book um and um, i've been kind of haunted by this question of agency. And I had a, a you know, discussion early on in the, and the drafts of this chapter with a colleague who was saying that, um, for her agency meant, um, action towards, um, a conscious intent, you know, a kind of conscious goal. And usually it meant some kind of successful right. <laughs> action towards that. And, and, uh, And I was playing with that, and my reaction uh, uh, over time was that that's a a fine definition of agency, but that is somewhat more constrained than what I want to work with. And also many people are quite allergic or at least nervous around the idea of anything other than humans having forms of agency. Um, So there are a number of of other works that I went to to help think through the elephant question, and Jane Bennett's work. Right. On, you know, on mm-hmm. different forms of materialism and other, I mean, she's very interesting thinker around um, agency and also just this idea of more dispersed agency. So someone else, who else I draw on in this chapter is Jeremy Prestholt's mm-hmm. book, um, which is lovely about the ways in which desire and agency throughout um, different uh, places in Africa was influencing the ways that social lives and uh, material objects were produced in Europe. Um, so, uh, yeah, you mentioned earlier this idea of co-production is something I'm very interested in. And then in this chapter, I'm trying to expand it beyond the elephants because it really got me thinking that the kind of question of um, what if. Like if the elephants had been wiped out from this area, and uh, what would... Have emerged, and it would be a quite a different um, way of uh, people, of farmers experiencing life without elephants, of environmentalists trying to rally interest in this place, of government officials trying to negotiate these often really um, conflictual <laughs> dynamics between farmers and elephants. And when I did some research in the Chinese archives about this, I was fascinated to, ne- to learn that. The 1950s, the government sent down this team of biologists, and I knew one of the biologists that went down. And at that point, they far away from from this area in the tropical rainforest, they had no idea if there were any left. They thought they presumed that they were extinct; mm-hmm. um, that they had all been hunted out. But um, the elephants themselves, through their forms of agency, and I am thinking about agency. Think about agency in terms of um, drawing on Sabah. Uh, Mahmood's work, um, Politics of Piety, I think about desire and how desire is part of uh, these forms of of motivation. Mm -hmm. And so I make no presumptions about what elephants are trying to do as a goal, but I try to look at their actions and how their desires um, push them forward to, you know, seek out uh, farmers' fields of rice. And so when the rice is um, getting ripe, the elephants just in large groups come out of the forest and come down and just feast on, on the rice fields. And, uh, you know, for actually millennia farmers in that area have been negotiating the elephants. And it was for a long time. I heard that, you know, torches and banging metal together worked for a while. And then, um, that kind of gave way. And then when I was still there in the 1990s, um, And then 2000s, a number of people had gotten um, flintlock uh, muskets. A number of them would fashion, home fashion them out of um, different materials. And they would end up um, sometimes shooting at elephants that would be raiding their fields over and over. Um, But then in part due to the um, environmental winds that kind of came through. And I was there when there was huge gun uh, confiscation. A move that just devastated a number of these people who were quite fearful about what their lives would be like without um, guns. Then it meant that now unarmed uh, people had to face elephants in really different ways, and there was a lot of talk that the elephants' behavior themselves was changing in relationship to that. And when I talk to um, to friends here. It was really interesting because they said, well, wild animals are basically instinctual things. They don't have any history to them. They don't. They just do what their instincts say. And in thinking through the the, the, the villagers that I live with and even, you know, and scientists and others, I began to think of elephants as, you know, and not just a particular animal, but maybe as a way to think through non-human agency writ large, who are actually quite historically situated actors in a way, in a broad in a, in a broad way, and having quite a lot of, of, of effect and changing their behavior quite, quite quickly.
1: And there are these really uh-huh. interesting moments in this chapter, too, where elephants, I mean, that sort of line between human and non-human agency gets really blurry. So mm-hmm. I think one of the really striking moments here is when you describe Chinese elephants as were China's elephants, as having among the highest per capita murder rate in the world. It's like, whoa, that actually changes changes a little bit when you think about it in those terms, right? Can elephants yep. have a murder rate?
0: Yeah, yeah. And I, I don't know. I, I was trying to think through what I want to reuse that term murder or not, but... Um, it turned out that through this report that appeared briefly on the web and is no longer there but i have a copy of it that actually tried to document all the the cases of elephant attacks and i was really curious does this is this level of engagement i know that elephants have been far more on the receiving end of human violence historically mm-hmm. um, but if it, if that level was possible anywhere in the world and i uh, most the best statistics were from India, and I you know was in conversation with a number of these um elephant researchers in India or read and read their materials and it turned out that in this small area that the, the the rates of violence were incredibly large and one of the things that was so fascinating talking to forest guards in china is that well i I would assume that it's probably some bull elephants that are responsible for you know a large percentage of these mm-hmm. uh lethal encounters would you ever consider um you know eliminating one of these, well, of course, that is unthinkable, whereas in almost all these other countries, um, that is very much, for centuries at least, been part of the state uh, modus operandi, and that's a form of of kind of governmentality that exists, and I I and a number of other people find it quite fascinating that then China has emerged as this almost like model uh, country of what it might mean to... Uh, foster forms of wildlife conservation that are non-lethal. So here we're in British Columbia, and every year, hundreds of um, bears, for example, are bother humans and are just quickly uh, killed. Um, but in China, this place, just on the smallest tip of the, the northernmost edge of the Asian elephant in Southeast Asia, that they are, are treated by the state with just incredible... Um, kind of benevolence or some other Mm -hmm. forms of protection. And they themselves are the major motivating force for these massive national uh, parks that are being created, sometimes even across borders. So it's been interesting for me to see how politicians in two different countries are actually putting huge amounts of, of political labor into trying to make these spaces, um, uh, better for the survival and the proliferation of elephants, even across borders.
1: So, Michael, <laughs> if you can believe it, we've been talking for an hour. I can't <laughs> believe it because this has been this has gone so quickly. There's so much more that we could talk about, right? I mean, for, in every single chapter. Is there anything in particular, though, mm-hmm. that we haven't had a chance to talk about that you'd like to mention about the book? Um, and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't mm-hmm. yet had a chance to read it. Mm-hmm.
0: Hmm. Not quite sure. Um, you said something earlier, too, about the ways that... Um, you know, the work of these individuals are built upon the previous generations. And I think, too, I've been really influenced by some of the science studies literature about to, um, you know, Stephen Shapin and a number of others, or the Hacking's work on the production of, of facts and statistics. And one of the things that I started uh, thinking through is all the kinds of Forms of invisible or hidden labor that go into, at least whether it's the concepts of the indigenous or or other um, dynamics, and I'll give an example that we often just don't understand. And um, one thing that I saw when I first got there was that uh, all these claims that Yunnan was this place of incredible biological diversity has thousands of plants, thousands, hundreds of different animal, um, bird species, mammal species. Etc. And um, what I um, found is through especially talking with this older generation, is that they told me stories of how much, you know, sometimes it took them years of labor of going out to the mountains and knowing these, knowing what was already known to science, like incredible amounts of reading and knowledge to actually be able to see the bird that had never been recorded there before. So all this kind of forms of social labor and all the kinds of organizations that it took to 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 say that okay, for example, Yunnan doesn't just have 541 species of birds; they have 542, <laughs> you know. And it really um, intrigued me, um, and I guess in uh, like a number of different arenas, all the kinds of uh, social labor that goes mm-hmm. into you know creating these things that then just become a, a statistic that just seems self-evident. Um, um, so I think that is something that kind of carries through and, and trying to understand what was, what was going on and what is um, ongoing there. Yeah.
1: So now that the book is out, congratulations mm-hmm. on the book. You. What's next for you? Are there any projects that are currently inspiring you? Yeah, well,
0: one uh, thing that um, kind of uh, carries off from uh, the, the Yunnan project Was that I was on the southern edge of um, on the edge of the southern edge of the Tibetan plateau, um, right? And the one of the world's best places for a um, a wild mushroom that is incredibly lucrative, Mm -hmm. and it's called the matsutake in Japanese. and In Canada, people often know it as the pine mushroom. And so I became um, involved with a research collective and uh there aren't too many of these in anthropology we tend to you know go off by ourselves like you know many historians (laughs) as well and uh it's been an incredible time um so this research project on the on the matsutake mushroom and trying to understand it as a global commodity chain but not just in terms of how it literal value is produced from you know finding it in the mountains all the way to its um, consumption almost always in Japan but also trying to understand what are the social worlds that this mushroom is facilitating or helping to produce in the many different places so we have people that are working within Japan itself um, within the Pacific Northwest especially Oregon and then I'm leading the, the research in China And so we're trying to understand, you know, in these places where people really get swept up in this, I mean, and make, you know, huge amounts of money um, in in picking this wild mushroom, what are the ways in which the the existing social contour is also um, influencing these emerging um, social relations that happen so differently between China and um, Pacific Northwest? So quickly... In Pacific Northwest, many of the pickers are Southeast Asian immigrants who are actually emerge, coming over because of the secret war in Laos and were fighting alongside with the U.S. forces, some of them even trained by the CIA in Colorado and mm-hmm. now coming back as political refugees. And um, they are quite passionate mushroom pickers and they are – often picking side by side with white Vietnam vets up high in the woods in Oregon. And so Ana Singh has been leading that part of the research. And my work in uh, Yunnan um, has found that many of the pickers are ethnic Tibetans who um, very quickly are becoming wealthy and building these huge, what they call Matsutake mansions. And there's been this interesting like, Tibetan revival of architecture, of painting, of, of all these forms that is facilitated by this mushroom, and it's changing their relationship with the uh, the surrounding um, Han Chinese, who often kind of mm, dismissed uh, the Tibetans as being of you know low kind of cultural background, of being um, kind of fixed into poverty, et cetera, et cetera. And so, looking at how these uh, dynamics are changing quite quickly, um, also looking at some of the internal gender dynamics or what happens when wealth occurs um, quite rapidly or and their lives become tied into these international networks with the price of mushrooms in Japan that, that uh, vacillates so rapidly and extremely. So that's um, something that I've been involved in for some time. I uh, really enjoyed working with my uh, group and I'll be leaving in a few days to, <laughs> to go back to China and Japan and, and follow these, um, these kind of global connections. So. Great.
1: Well, Michael, thank you so much. It's been a total pleasure. Congratulations on the book and best of luck in China and Japan and with the Matsutake mushroom research.
0: Great. Thanks so much.
1: You've been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you next time.